because we get so caught up with what we're trying to do, what we're trying to achieve, what our next step is. I think very few of us take time to kind of look back retrospectively with a learning mindset. Welcome to the OT podcast, which takes a deep dive into the topics affecting optometry today. Each time we'll find a real expert in their field and attempt to pull everything we can out of their brain so it may reside in yours. This is the seventh episode in the series and we're recording on 28th of September 2023. You can listen to the other episodes on the OT website, on Apple or Spotify or from your usual podcast provider. In our seventh episode, we'll be looking at how to fail successfully. My name is Kerry Smith-Janes. I'm an optometrist um, in independent practice in Lancashire and I'm the clinical multimedia editor at Optometry Today. And also with me... Ian Beasley. I'm, I'm also an optometrist and I work for the AOP as head of education and also clinical editor of Optometry Today. And I'm also a visiting lecturer at Aston University. So in line with tradition during our podcast, Kerry, perhaps we're doing a mini plug for our current CPD offering through Optometry Today. So anything that's caught your eye at the moment? Uh, yeah, well, new to um, Optometry Today at the moment is... Um, a new version of the clinical interpretation feature. Um, we did used to call it VRIX and then image interpretation. Um, so we've rebranded as clinical interpretation and it's an online only CPD feature. And the reason for that is it now features video clips. So this one is cases from the glaucoma clinic and it's been um, authored by Kirsty Eagers and Lucy Andrews. And they've got some lovely images for you to look at and then answer questions, but also a, a really good video clip to to interpret. So that's a, a nice, exciting new launch. In the pipeline, I'd just like to uh, highlight um, the next CPD video as well. Um, and uh, we filmed this at Aston University with uh, Dr. Sonia Travehuate, and it's all about dry eye. And she's got some amazing bits of kit um, and lots of insight into um, treating those patients. Um, and there's lots of sort of hands-on demonstrations as well. So uh, I think... Uh, that'll probably be really popular. And as an added bonus, that, that video offers two interactive CPD points as well. So those that yeah, are short of, of interactive CPD can, can take a look at that video. My pick's an easy one, really, in terms of CPD articles in October, November. We've had a bit of an eyelid takeover for mm. that edition. So we've got a series of four articles, and, and readers can pick and choose which articles they, they want to take. But I'd suggest probably completing them as a series. As I was editing and processing that article, some of the images were terrifying. So some fairly innocuous looking eyelid lesions that actually um, turned out to be basal cell carcinomas. So I think it's well worth practitioners consolidating their their knowledge and having a look at the um, pretty and not so pretty eyelid lesions. So... Time for, an, for another short plug as well. So as you've alluded to already, Kerry, this uh, theme of this podcast and indeed the October-November edition of OT is devoted to how to fail successfully. And um, I've helped pull together a piece where I, I bear my soul really of my biggest failure in my professional life, which was over a five-year period from 2008 to 2013. Uh, I don't want to give the game away too much, but it was a, a really torrid time in, in my professional life, which then spilled over into having an impact on my personal life and, and, and mental well-being. And as 
I was interviewed for that piece, I realized that I'm actually not quite over it still. But at the same time, that extended period of failure over five years has really helped shape um, some of my relative successes, I would say, ever since and has, has um, been important in guiding my decision making going forwards. So I'd urge readers to perhaps have a, have a sneak peek at that article, um, which is I Could Not Live Without. It's available online and in the print edition. Thanks for doing that, Ian, because it's quite a brave thing to do, bear, bear your soul in, in print and online. So um, yeah, but a lot of people can, can learn from it. So um, you know, thanks for making yourself vulnerable in that way. Mm, I definitely felt vulnerable when I was interviewed for it. It's, it's quite emotional, actually, t- taking myself back to that, that dark time. But um, onwards and, and upwards. <laughs> Talking of which, we have a guest today. Yeah, perfect um, segue into, into introducing our, our guest, um, Peter Greedy. Um, Peter's an optometrist with extensive experience in management and leadership roles. He's an accredited coach who is passionate about personal, professional and leadership development, addressing toxic cultures and bringing trust and belonging into the heart of organisations. And outside of optometry, he's also the inventor and owner of an award-winning patented shoelace system. Our podcast guest today actually has um, done some training for optometry today. Um, He's recorded a practice team training video and it's aimed at the entire practice team, so not just your um, professional staff, but everybody in in the practice. And we have a whole series of videos online at the moment. And the one that Peter's um, done is called Working as a Team. So uh, if you'd like to direct your practice staff to it, I'm sure they'll get some really useful tips out of it. Yeah, they can register for free on the on the OT website for that, can't they? Carry the, the staff members and they, they they watch the the video, answer a few MCQs, and then they get a, a personalised certificate to confirm that they've passed the exercise. Which I think is is nice for them, but also helpful for the practice to show that their their team are being trained in a consistent way. Welcome, Peter. Now it's clear from from the intro I just gave to you that you've you've certainly had your your fair share of successes which has, has got you to the the place where you are now with a, a real nice mix of experience but I guess for, for most people it, it's not necessarily a, a linear path from from A to B and I think that's perhaps a good place to start if we could just get you to give a flavor of how, how have you got to where you are now and what are some of the bumps along the way yeah sure so perhaps a lesser known fact about me is that my whole career in optometry you could say started with a failure in that I actually got kicked out of dental school. (laughs) (laughs) It's a juicy start Peter. (laughs) So um, yeah when I was I remember as a kid doing my A-levels you know and um, making my selections as a kid I was always encouraged to choose a profession and I knew medicine would be too much study for me and I I ummed and ahed between dentistry and optometry and I actually asked my careers advisor when I was doing my uni applications, could I do, could I put three dental schools and two optometry schools? Because I really, it was almost on a flip of a coin. And they they, they said, um, don't do that because actually anyone who looks at that will just see you're undecided. <laughs> um, so as it was, um, I plumped for dentistry first time round and I got into Guy's Dental School, which was great. And then I completely bombed. Essentially, I was I was in halls of residence um, and got distracted with uh, another significant life event going on um, parallel to university. 
And uh, first time round, I literally failed all four exams. Then I got the chance to reset. I passed three, but I still couldn't do biochemistry to save my life. Then, yeah, so got chucked out of guys. Um, I was in London. So because of my history there, I instantly applied to City University because I wanted to stay in London. Was offered uh, a place immediately, but they were full. And they said, don't worry, just take a gap year. Off you go and uh, we'll take you the following year. And then about four days before the term started, I got a phone call from admissions at City saying, we've had someone dropped out. You were like 23 on the list, but for we just decided to offer it to you. Do you want to start? And I was still living in London. I said, yes, please. I'll be there on Monday. <laughs> and that was that was my start into optometry. So so uh, very much on the theme of um, failing with success. That that was kind of kicked it off there. You also referenced that um, that that parallel life, and and you've sort of left that dangling a little bit. Um, so do, do you want to sort of tell us a, a bit more about that? If- Yeah, so that is, I mean, it's a very important part of my history, Um, what I like to call my story. Story is a big thing for me, and and I use story a lot in my coaching work, and I actually use story a lot in my um, history and symptoms chats with my my patients, because understanding people's stories is really important. So my story there is, um, I was born and raised in, in a vicarage, my dad's a vicar, and so I was always involved in the church as a kid, and so when I came to London, a friend of mine who was uh, a year above me school-wise, he said, oh, you know, when you come to London, um, I want you to, you know, come along to this group. And I thought, yeah, it's great. And my brother and I used to lead the church youth group. And I thought, yeah, I'll join a CU. It'd be a good way to make friends outside of my university life, as it was. So, so I went along to this and effectively, the way I summarise it now in hindsight, I was recruited into a cult. My friend had been recruited previously and the way that the recruitment process happens is that he was in a halls of residence. Some American guys from the cult um, got permission to go round the dorms, literally knocking on doors and inviting people to come along to this kind of evening meeting. And you were then taken through a, a weekly sort of introduction to, for those who ha- might have a little bit of knowledge around church, there's a famous course called the Alpha course, which is run by mm. a lot of um, evangelical churches. It was kind of similar to that. And they take you through and one of the kind of recruitment tactics of bringing you into a cult, they call it love bombing. And basically it means you just get completely kind of, constantly contacted by people who just you know are attractive in terms of you know they're interesting people they're intelligent people Uh, they were all Americans at the time and back then so this is 1983 I was kind of um, unlike now I was a bit of an Americanophile as it were these guys were from the Midwest they were kind of cowboys you know and they're interesting big kind of football playing guys we played ultimate frisbee at the weekends And then one of the other tactics of cult recruitment is they literally fill your life with activity. So there'd be stuff, you know, regularly in the evenings, stuff at the weekends, stuff on Sunday. You kind of didn't have much time to do other things. And that's I got involved in that. I got sucked in, I suppose. Um, And that started the journey in that cult for me. Um, So it was a Christian organization founded in the States and then a bunch of 
Americans and some Europeans planted what they called a community um, in London and they had an outreach called University Christian Outreach and that was what I got recruited into and was a member of for six years as part of the university outreach and then when I got married I met my wife through that we got married and then we became part of the sort of fuller more adult family orientated kind of community and we were in that for 15 years so that's partly why I I would say you know I I got bombed out of uh, dental school in some respects because I was just my life was just busy I mean I could I could do the work I always struggled with biochemistry it was just uh, a nightmare of long chain carbon molecules as far as I could tell um, and I never had the brain for that but yeah that was part of my journey into that organization wasn't really aware that it was a cult. We came out, we were there for 15 years, left in 1998. Was that a mistake? <laughs> um, I don't think so. I am very philosophical about that. I like to have, I don't like to have regrets. You know, I think I wouldn't have met my wife, wouldn't have had the kids I've got, you know, a whole bunch of things. You can, yes, we. it could have been a sliding doors moment and I could have gone down a different path. But it's also led me to where I am today. And I don't, you know, I reframe my coaching work. I reframe, I don't like the word failure. <laughs> um, and, you know, whether you win or lose, whether you're successful or not, my view is I take a learning mindset, everything, whether it's a win, whether it's a loss, whether it's a success or whether it's a fail, it's a learning opportunity. You, sh you learn from everything. And as long as we keep learning, and move that sort of stuff forward, uh, you know, I think that's the positive because we'll never get, none of us will get it perfect. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. it's just that journey of um, continuing on. Yeah, I've, I've certainly learned more from my failures, I would say, than, than successes. So that, that certainly chimes with me. But the, the optometry, as you were tra training to be an optometrist at City, alongside that being in the cult, that, that didn't, you managed to sort of balance those two things? Yeah, so I, I did, actually. I mean, the, the whilst the cult was quite time-consuming, it you know, it was, it was actually full of professional people. One of the tactics, if you like, of the cult was to target university people because they're intelligent. <laughs> Chances are they'll have successful careers and therefore they're very influential people. You know, one of the things that... If I look back at that, most of the men and women I went through university with that were involved with the cult have been extremely successful in business. Let me come back to optometry because I'm talking quite a lot about that other side. Optometry, therefore, allowed me to kind of have a successful career. Having gone through university, and I, I was never academic, I scraped by with a 2-2, um, it was enough, and... Um, you know, I jumped straight into uh, uh, obviously my pre-reg and then uh, high street practice. And I did about 10 years in optometry, but I do have a fairly low boredom threshold and I'm very much a kind of jack of all trades kind of guy. So after about 10 years in optometry, the last five of which I worked for a group that's no longer around, the Ronald Brown Group. They were taken over by Scrivens, as we probably know. I was the group contact lens manager for uh, the Ronnie Brown Group. So I was, it was 25 practices, roughly, and uh, got on very well with Ronnie and his son, Jeremy, 
and wife um, Doreen and you know they they were great to me I have to say they they really encouraged me looked after me I was running the practice in Feltham I was a pre-reg supervisor I was the group contact lens manager so I was invited to be on various key opinion leader kind of things back in the day for Pilkin and Barnes Hind and Bausch and Lom, Alcon, as it were, Hydro, those sorts of things. I then thought, mm, I'd love to go more into management and leadership, even back then. And uh, because it was a family-run business, Jeremy Brown was heir apparent, and there wasn't really an opportunity, I suppose, for me to think, oh, I could become the next, you know, managing director or something like that. And so, um, yeah, through my contact lens work, I, I saw an opportunity, basically, to kind of transition and, and so I started applying for professional services roles. I had a few interviews and then got hired by Bausch and Lom. Initially self-employed on a sort of part-time, I think three day a week. Um, and then shortly after that I was taken on full time. So I was the UK professional services manager for a few years. And then within that, again because of I think not so much my because I I I, I like a wide variety of challenges I suppose I was also within a couple of years I was looking for you know how do I what other things could I do so um, shortly after that I became the European training director for the surgical division so I joined Bausch in 96 that's the year I think they sold Ray-Ban to uh, Luxottica and with that money they bought some surgical companies Chiron and Storz that make the fake emulsification machines and had a whole range of intraocular lenses. They also bought a German company called Technolas that did lasers for, um, you know, laser corrective surgery. And yeah, I got seconded into the surgical division and was running uh, sales training for uh, for the European region. And that was really interesting to me because I, I got sent to America. I worked with a guy who was actually a psychologist and we kind of developed this training program and it was very much I was a train the trainer kind of guy and it was all about uh, effectively questioning and listening skills and kind of what you do in coaching it's, it's very much about helping people understand what it is they want to do where they want to go etc a few years after that then I got seconded into the IT department and my six last six years in Baushalom I was European IT director rolling out CRM, customer relationship management systems around Europe. So again, learned a whole new set of skills. I was being put through an MBA program at Henley Management College at the time. So I learned about IT project management, which was, again, another great skill set to have and learned a lot. Um, however, in that I was a very much a misfit, <laughs> you know, because I'd never worked in IT and since I left Bausch and Lom in 2008, I've been self-employed. Well, yeah, I mean, we wanted to sort of talk about um, how you've turned these sort of personal failures into successes. And you've certainly, you've certainly touched on that. You touched on being a misfit. Is, in that sort of situation, is there anything you can do? I mean, we, we all try and fit in and do you sort of crow by yourself into that? Or, do, or is the best thing to do to, to just get out of there and move on? I mean, what do you do in that situation? Do you try and change the culture from the inside? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really important um, question, Kerry, because I think, you know, I, dealing with fitting in is one of the things I actually work on actively. Um, and actually fitting in is unhealthy, in my opinion. So, you know, in my work in leadership, 
I want to help people create a culture of trust and belonging. And fitting in is not a culture of belonging. Fitting in is all about changing yourself to match, you know, the norm. And that's expressed in all sorts of ways. And actually being part of a cult or any sort of radical organisation is all about fitting in, you know, at the extreme, something like, you know, the neo-Nazis, they, they have uniforms almost, you know, they have, they behave in the same way, they do the same gestures, they say the same stuff. But in, in any organisation, uh, whether it's really radical or just kind of a, a club, you know, we we generally, and I think social media particularly is terrible for this, you know, we look at social media and what we see is people's best life. And then we try and copy that, but we compare that to what's going on inside us. And that gap is huge because we see all these amazing role models or lives that are broadcast there. And, and everyone seems to be like, oh my goodness, that's what I want to be. But then we compare that to who we really are. And there's a huge difference. And so the thing for me with belonging, which is I see as positive versus fitting in, which I see as negative, is... Belonging is where you're accepted for who you are and you're not trying to be changed by the other people to kind of be moulded. And that, you know, that was definitely my experience of being in a cult. And it happens in corporations too. You know, there's particular ways of doing things. And I think, you know, so yeah, fitting in is, is I, I would say, to, to in the work I do, generally, I strip it right back and I want people to think about their values and what their beliefs are, irrespective of what everyone else thinks, you know. And a lot of that, in terms of finding, Simon Sinek refers to it as finding your why, you know, and people that look at these things like purpose and meaning and your why, you know, most of them will say, that's, and I found this really difficult to kind of comprehend myself, they say most of that is firmly embedded in you by a very young age, like, five, six, seven, eight. And then I think, oh my goodness, how does that relate to all my experiences and stuff like that? And and it takes a lot of work, therefore, to kind of journey back there a little bit to think about how was I influenced and, and how did that stuff work? And uh, what's interesting is I only, I've only started to understand that retrospectively because we get so caught up with what we're trying to do, what we're trying to achieve, what our next step is. I think very few of us take time to kind of look back retrospectively with a learning mindset. It's like, what can I see? What can I do from there? So I can give you a quick example, if that's okay. I'm reading um, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers book. It, it's oh, yeah, it's fascinating, okay? I'd highly mm -hmm. recommend it to everyone. Mm -hmm. At one point, they talk about, he talks about, I think, what they call social intelligence. And it's how we're conditioned as kids and stuff. And I was, I was actually thinking about my own life. And, and I was thinking, okay, what was I like when I was five, six, seven, eight? And actually, um, at that time, I was living in a vicarage. My dad was a vicar. My mum's archetypical vicar's wife ran everything, the Sunday school, the, the, the fairs, the women's guild, you know, everything you can imagine. And to a large degree, my brother and I were kind of left to ourselves to do some stuff. And we had a great relationship. But also because we were in that church environment, again, it's, a, it's like a mini community. So a simple example is 
in terms of how how it's kind of affected me in in terms of confidence i could be in church for example at nine years old the person um, who was on the rotor to do the reading for that service okay would might not have showed up and literally sort of in the middle of the service my dad would look at my brother or myself and give us a nod at sort of nine years old and that we knew that we needed to walk up to the lectern and read the lesson from the bible you know for the church you know, and and, I, and if I think about a little thing like that, it's like, okay, so that's what well, I'm an introvert, but I'm what they call an extroverted introvert, you know, so a lot of people see me as a confident person, I can sit and chat to you guys very easily here, whether it's recorded or not, etc. And I can stand in front of a group of people and, and, you know, be quite happy with that. And I know people who are paralysed by that, you know. But I think, okay, so that's really interesting. This one little kind of microcosm of what my life was like and how that's influenced. And I can see little influences. And there's hundreds of that for all of us, you know, whether that's a positive experience or, you know, a negative experience. You know, if you're if you're in the middle classes, you're very much enabled by your parents who are fighting for best schools for you, for best experiences for you, taking you to clubs and socials and sports and stuff. If you're not, you know, you're left to your own devices and that can go easily, you know, south or it can be quite, you know, amazing people who become really resourceful, really creative, might become entrepreneurs, but other people can slide away and have have real problems. So, so yeah, I think, I think just tapping into what, who you are as an individual primarily and, and then asking yourself that question, coming right back to the fitting in stuff in a roundabout way, does, do my core values and my beliefs align with the core values and beliefs of the organisation within which I sit? Whether that's your job, whether that's a club, your faith or, or whatever. And if it's not, I would say you're in the wrong place, actually, and you want to move on. And it, it doesn't mean you instantly can do that. I know I was stuck to a degree because I had, I, you know, I had a young family like a lot of people, I'm quite, you know, I'm a professional. I'm quite good at earning money. I'm equally good, if not better, at spending money. So you end up stuck with a mortgage, with with debt. And I couldn't suddenly just say, no, this place is not right for me. Uh, I'm going to quit and go somewhere else. I could not do that. But what I did then was think, OK, strategically, what could I do? How can I do that? I was able to take a, a voluntary redundancy because there were changes in the organisation and for me, that was absolutely the right thing. For someone else, it would have not been the right thing um, and it would have worked. And that's OK. But I think you've got to, my, my real view here is you've got to be true to yourself. If you want to have that kind of sense of peace, contentment, a lot of people talk about happiness, you know, um, ha- whatever you want to call that. Otherwise, you're still constantly in sort of internal conflict, which I believe can lead to all sorts of other issues like you know mental health issues of depression anxiety and all sorts of stuff so so yeah I think digging into your values being really clear about them and I've evolved my values over the over the years you know I'm very clear my two core values are connection and contribution and those are the those drive kind of every decision I make whether it's in my family life, whether it's in my business life, whether it's in my social life, etc. And, you know, my own well-being, 
those those that you know I've got really clear on those and and that's from going back to my past and looking at my journey my history and, and seeing you know what who am I if you like so Peter perhaps uh, those experiences shaped why you've moved into being self-employed because it allows you to be more agile and if you don't feel like you're making those connections or, or being able to make a contribution in the way that you'd like that you can step away and, and, and find something else rather than being committed to an organization yeah there's a couple of factors there ian one of the reasons i chose to take voluntary redundancy was a few years before that parallel to all of these other things i invented something and you know actually for me at that point it was an opportunity i actually thought for one for for a while that my invention would be my future professional life, um, which was nothing to do with optometry. I happened to invent a, a shoelace system that I got a, a patent on, and um, it showed great promise. And I thought, oh, I'm going to throw myself at this. And so um, I've kind of partly used my redundancy money to 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 kind of launch that business. Now, given that we've been talking about failure... I would say that also is one of my major failures. The business is still running, but it's a little cottage industry and there's no way it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big global brand corporation or anything. And that was because I failed dismally because what I've learned is I'm absolutely not a good salesperson or marketing person. Um, and, and I was on my own and, and actually, so, you know, again, in terms of lessons learned, you know, I learned if I'd have done it with a partner probably would have been much better, uh, particularly if that partner had been somebody with some of the skills that I lacked. So, so that was my journey into self-employment. Originally, I thought that's fine. I'll just step back. I've got some money. I can launch my little business and I've had an amazing time doing that, but it's been kind of a series of again, failures, or as, as I like to say, learnings, you know. Um, and so I've, I've been self-employed, trying to launch that business, and doing locum optometry and my other things now for 15 years. So since I left Bausch and Lomb in 2008. And so my, my little business, Griepa Laces, you know, it's given me some amazing experiences. It's taken me around the world. I've been to China several times. I've been to Hawaii for the Ironman World Championships and I've seen the winner of the race run over the finish line wearing my shoelaces in his trainers and I've got I've met these people and you know it's given me incredible life experiences that you know again absolutely no regrets is it you know a multi-million corporation absolutely not you know it's just a shoelace and that I've had loads of opportunities to I've talked to shoe companies and trainer companies you know and I've got a long way down the line sometimes of doing sort of a a deal with them and for whatever reason it's never happened and that's either just because it wasn't meant to be or because I was not good enough at selling the product in and that's okay but you can still go online and buy them but you know it's I I literally just run it from my home I've got a shed in my back garden that holds the stock if you need a pair of laces I literally, some of them, because of COVID, a lot of things changed. So sometimes I literally sit there and make 
make them up, put them in the packaging, print off the instructions, print off the order, go to the post office, stick them in the post and, and you get your laces. So it's, it's nothing glorified, like I've got a big warehouse and a big head office or anything like that. But it could have been, I think, with a different set of circumstances. You know, but now I'm still I'm still doing my locum optometry. And, and interestingly, I would say I moved into kind of more formally doing coaching and leadership development as a result of COVID. So again, things, you know, were pretty bleak at that point because I, as a self-employed optometrist, I had no work for about four months. And again, it's like, what, what do you do? My wife's also self-employed. She didn't have work. Um, it was quite scary times, actually. And it was while I had no work, I got a formal accreditation and trained up as a coach. And what's really interesting, again, I thought maybe my coaching will be in in the city, it'll be in fintech, or it'll be in law or accounting, or some of the professions that could do with this. Bizarrely, actually, where I'm doing most of my coaching and leadership development is back in optometry in my own profession. You know, because like every business, um, every profession, every industry, every sector, we have problems too. You know, and I hear stories of toxic leadership within our own profession. Particularly, you know, we're very much part, if we got GOS contracts and I'm on the LOC, we're very much part of the NHS. And, you know, we provide primary care service to the public and so I'm exposed to work within the NHS and I, I quoted a statistic earlier that that's horrible but you know in, in Gloucestershire where I work I've heard I chat to my patients a lot when I'm doing an eye exam you know and I had a lady who was in the accounts department of of the NHS locally and she was like yes I've been bullied it's everywhere and it sort of excites me with an opportunity given where my training and skill set is. But it actually also not depresses me because I'm not a depressive kind of person, but I'm also sort of organisations like the NHS, they're such behemoths of organisations, you know. And if this culture is rife throughout such a big organisation, you know, the thought of how to change that, you know, it's like trying to turn an oil tanker. It's just you're only ever going to get tiny little incremental changes, whereas actually it would be amazing just to be able to start from scratch and, and and restructure the whole thing. But we know we can't do that. So trying to think about what the opportunities are there then as a self-employed person who still considers himself part of NHS services as a primary eye care practitioner and also somebody who's networking. And, you know, there's there's always opportunities for... For something and, and, and I'm currently you know still looking at what those opportunities might be. Peter you alluded to working story into your history and symptoms taking in practice um, can you just tell us a little bit about how you do that and how it works? I have this thing um, courageous curious and compassionate connection that kind of helps me describe and remember um, how to connect with people. The other phrase I have a lot is what I call the assumption of positive intent. And that's essentially saying that any person at any point in time is doing the best they can. And, you know, we see some interesting characters in the chair when we're doing eye exams, you know, and interesting characters come through the front door of our practices. 
uh, talking about fitting in, they might not fit, you know, to some of our kind of normal stereotypes and people that we would naturally kind of be attracted to or drawn to or, or whatever. Uh, and what I've found by exercising that value, I'm curious, I'm always curious to know what's the story behind this person. That does take a bit of courage, a bit of bravery to kind of ask, you know, some deeper questions. Obviously, you've got to be compassionate and non-judgmental. But if you take the time to ask with kindness, I generally find people are keen to tell you their story. Uh, And for a history and symptoms and doing an eye exam, we have an amazing opportunity to connect with those people. And I'm aware sometimes, you know, I might, if I've got a, if I'm lucky and have a nice 40 minute eye exam slot, I might literally spend half half an hour of that time just talking. But as I'm talking, I'm learning about that individual. And sometimes the service I can provide for them is just to listen uh, and to give them some space. But also, you know, um, one of the things I use a lot and uh, one of the easiest ways into a bit of someone's story is, you know, part of history and symptoms is we always ask what medication people are on. I'm always amazed how many people are on antidepressants of some sort, be it citalopram, sertraline, fluoxetine, etc. You know, and and I will... The British mentality is kind of a little bit, I think it's changing with the generations, but certainly my generation. We have a funny relationship with mental health, which isn't a good relationship with mental health, in my opinion. And actually just being brave enough, having that courage to say, oh, you know, is that for anxiety or depression or or, or whatever? Because they'll tell you the medication, but... If you ask about their general health, you say, how are you? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. You know, and then you ask for their medication. They'll give you uh, one of the antidepressants in their list or just that might be the only thing they're on. And they're just asking, asking kindly. Oh, you know, can you just explain is that for whatever it is? And that is a little door into often quite another bunch of conversations. I've had people really open up to me, tell me about family problems you know, I had one lady who told me she was really struggling because her daughter was in a cult, <laughs> you know, and that opened up a fantastic conversation for us because she was really struggling. She wasn't allowed to see her daughter or her grandchildren or all sorts of stuff. And that connection, it does two things. Number one, it serves that person because it really helps them. But actually, I think, and this isn't cynical, it's good for business, <laughs> actually, because if you're able to connect with that person, you, you will gain a client for life in your practice because no, very few people will connect with them in that way. So yeah, I think I think use you know making the most of history and symptoms, not rushing through that, just taking a bit of time. And of course, you might find people are reluctant to talk about certain history, you know, whether they've had a stroke or whether they've had a heart attack or whether they've had, you know, whatever. Um, and all of a sudden you get little insights to to their general health that we might be able to then detect some signs of that in their eyes when we do, you know, when we look at their fundus. And, and it builds that much bigger, fuller picture of the people that we're serving through our profession. 
I, th- I think um, the history and symptoms taking is something I learned to do far too late, really. I, I, yeah, I thought it was about filling in these boxes as accurately as possible and as, as speedily getting the exact information from that patient and getting it in the box. Um, and I, I think I came to that sort of patient-centred examination a bit, a bit too late, really. I could, yeah. And Peter, you've clearly got a very, very full life with being an optometrist and the, the leadership work and, and, and running the the small scale shoelace business. But perhaps we could finish on talking about your your work um, for Vision Care for Homeless People as well, which you seem to find time to also fit into the mix. So, yeah, as I said, jack of all trades. <laughs> so, so I've got lots of things going on. So I'm chair of the uh, Gloucester branch of Vision Care for Homeless People. And, uh, and I've been involved in that since kind of before it was up and running. So um, through a colleague that I met through my locum work, a local optometrist in uh, the Gloucestershire area who actually now is an optometrist but also works for Vision Care for Homeless People um, a couple of days a week. Karen, she's she's delightful. She, uh, I kind of reached out to them. I saw, I saw an advert for it. I don't remember where now. It was a couple of years ago. And yeah, I just reached out and said, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested to do that. I've done... I do have this, I told you one of my, you know, my core values are connection and contribution. And it's really aligned with that second value of contribution. And in the past, I've done done a couple of trips to Africa, a couple of different African countries doing sort of vision work overseas. And I just thought, well, actually, here's an opportunity just to do it on my doorstep. I approached them and they said, oh, yes, we'd love someone like you to be involved do you want to be chair? <laughs> and I was like, um, I, I was a little bit reluctant because one of the things I'm also aware of in my work is is my own privilege. You know, I'm cis, straight, white, male, tall, educated, middle class. I, I've got the kind of the royal flush of privilege. To then be a chair, if you like, of, of a little organisation, you know, I, I was slightly reluctant. So, so I've kind of made a commitment to myself, I suppose, in that, that that I, I will try and work to facilitate any succession for a role like that that I might have to be not another person from my demographic. But that that's a separate aside sort of value that I, I'm trying to trying to fulfill. But but essentially, as an organization, it's fantastic and they're they're actually rapidly expanding. And if if I might take the opportunity to give them a little plug, as it were, because they're they've got seven clinics active at the moment. They're about to open the eighth, but they've got an ambitious plan to have 20 clinics up and running within five years from now. And so anyone can volunteer. And and I essentially I try and do one clinic a month. Um, so it's not a massive commitment. But I'll, I'll go over to Gloucester where, where the clinic is. We're very lucky in Gloucester, uh, an organisation called Gloucester City Mission that does a lot of work with homeless, um, has a nice kind of old building that is their kind of permanent place. And they very kindly gave us a room to set up as a clinic. So it's literally set up as an eye testing room. We've, we're fully set up there. So we offer free eye exams and free glasses and um, we've also got things like eye drops and stuff that we can give out to a- anyone who c- qualifies as homeless. Because one of the challenges, once once you're in that scenario, you know, if you don't have a home address, you then can't claim benefits. So you can't s- tick a box saying I'm 
on this benefit or that benefit. A lot of them are on no benefits um, or, or whatever. For So for whatever reason, they fall through that net, if you like. And so Vision Care of Homeless People is there to kind of pick those people up. And so some of them, you know, um, are delightful. Well, frankly, I've not met, a, a, you know, an unpleasant person yet through that. They're delightful. And, and coming back to a point I made earlier, they all have a story. And some of those stories are really sad, um, hard, you know, um, one of the, we, we had a delightful young family in, you know, they're a young professional family from Syria. Uh, and they're amazing people, but that story, you know, their house was trashed and they left the country with a couple of suitcases, you know, nothing, all their savings gone, all their belongings gone, everything, you know, and, and so it just kind of, it gives you an insight into, you know, we often use the term first world problems, you know, and uh, and I think, you know, we within our profession are so privileged. You know, we have good jobs, we have good careers. Uh, generally, we're all very fortunate and and should be really grateful for the lives that we have. And I think anyone, therefore, if you've got a chance to give back a little bit, pay it forward or whatever you want to say, you know, there's lots of different ways. Vision Care for Homeless People within our profession is just one of them. We know there's a lot of great vision care charities and that's that's amazing so yeah it's a real for me it's a real privilege to be involved and to just see how we can really make an impact and change some people's lives for the good peter i think that's a a really nice place to to wrap things up so i just want to thank you for your time and in in particular for for sharing some of your uh, vulnerabilities through throughout this podcast thank you it's been an absolute pleasure happy to share it Thank you very much indeed.